This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast, a World Series edition. I'm Jason Ratliff with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. World Series underway, and we're going to take a look through, of course, the lens that we always do, the lens of looking at players when they were prospects, uh, rookies. Uh, we're going to take a look at some of the homegrown players in this World Series uh, between the Astros and Braves. Uh, look at the signing story, the drafting story of Austin Riley. And uh, in addition to some World Series talk, we will, of course, talk Arizona Fall League and the hottest player in the Arizona Fall League as we speak, as we record this, is Jeter Downs of the Red Sox has homered in five straight games. And Jim Callis out there in Arizona grabbed Jeter fresh off of his fifth home run. And we have an interview with him. And then we'll talk about some other guys who are playing well in the Arizona Fall League. And we'll wrap up, as we always do, by answering some questions or maybe, maybe just one question in the mailbag. Jim, Jonathan... Are you excited about this World Series? Not at all. <laughs> of course, couldn't care less. Yeah, an MLB podcast. We're both going to go. Not at all. Like not not, not into this. this World Series no, at all. Much more excited about the Arizona Fall League. Um, sure. I mean, it's it, the World Series is always exciting. Um, yeah, it's a little different because I'm going to be racing around. Like, and I've been out here for the World Series before, and I'm sure you have too at times, Jonathan. So it's a little different because you wind up catching snippets of it when you're in the press box at games um so i don't know how much of it i'm going to be watching live because i have a pretty busy schedule out here but to me the you know i don't know if i have a like like i guess deep down you always kind of root for one team over the other the way i'm looking at this one the first thing that comes to mind is i'm gonna be really happy for whichever manager wins the world series And, and it seems like an odd thing to say like i don't usually look at the world series that way but i think dusty baker's done just about everything in baseball been to the playoffs with however many different teams I never won a World Series. And, I mean, shoot, if they win, and this might put Dusty Baker, this might be the the, the cherry on top that puts him in the Hall of Fame, kind of in that Joe Torre category of, of guy who did a little bit of everything. And then Brian Snickers, like a baseball lifer, who, you know, looked like, you know, he might never really get a chance to manage in the big leagues. And, and now here he is, and he's had a really good, you know, both managers have done well this postseason. And it would be a cool story. You know, Brian Snickers kind of like the classic baseball lifer, and for him to win a World Series with the organization he's worked with for and played with, I don't know how many years it is, 40 years now, um, would be pretty cool. So that's I'll be happy for whichever manager gets gets to win this World Series. Yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I don't I don't, I don't have a horse in this race necessarily. And, you know, as, as we'll get to, you know, sort of we like to tell the origin stories. And I do like seeing guys that, uh, you know, we've been talking about or have talked to uh since you know maybe since they were amateurs uh but certainly you know since they were minor leaguers and to kind of see them uh be on this stage and then to see how they perform on this stage it, it's it's always fun to you know to to see the path that uh, different players take to to get to this is you know, i mean this is what they're all working for is to to try to win and uh you know uh it, uh, it's always enjoyable when it's like, oh, I remember talking to that guy in the fall league, or I mean, I interviewed that guy uh, at a college tournament, you know, whatever, whatever it may be, especially since Jim and I have been doing this for so long. I mean, we, we can kind of run the gamut of ways we've intersected with some of these guys before they got to where they are right now. All right. So let's take a look at how these two teams were built. Uh, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. We talk about it every year that we, uh, when the postseason field is set, we look at how each team was built in terms of how they acquired the players on their postseason roster, whether they came from trades, whether they were drafted, international signees, <clears throat> free agents, 
Uh, and when I look at this, uh, Jonathan, you did the story where we, when we get to the World Series, we then weed it down to the, those two teams. And when I look at these two teams, um, a couple things jump out. One is the pretty sizable advantage in terms of overall war. So we look at this, we break it down, not just by the number of players in each of those categories, but the uh, cumulative war, uh, B war in this case, baseball reference, um, for each of the teams and each of those segments of the roster. And uh, we found that, you know, over the past several years, there was a time where there was a really high percentage of the, the matchups were uh, won by the team that had the higher overall war. Or This was over the course of several years. It was, I, I want to say, like 70% or something like that. And in, in this case, the Astros with a sizable advantage, 50.5 to 42.9. And of course, you're looking at a Braves roster without Acuna, without Soroka. So, um, you know, big losses there. Uh, the other thing that stands out to me, though, is the the difference in the international talent on the two rosters. And of course, and then again, you get into uh, not having Acuna on the roster, but uh, the Astros with um, a sizable advantage there. Yeah, I mean, and that's, you know, it's largely, you know, in the regular season, you know, Jose Altuve and then, you know, the the pitchers that have really stepped up to, you know, help fill in the, in the rotation during the regular season. I almost wish, like, someone kept track of, of war in the postseason, uh, you know, because one of the things, like, look, for instance, Tyler Matzik, I'm going to use as, as the example, uh, you know, he had a good regular season and, and produced positive war, but he's been ridiculous in, in the postseason. So, uh, you know, sometimes you have to throw those numbers out the window. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, in terms, you know, listen, the Astros you know, won, what, 95 games in the regular season, and then the Braves had the the worst record of any playoff team. So the, the war total is not so surprising. And the Braves, you know, in terms of that the international disparity, you know, it's Ozzy Albies, and without Acuna, th- there isn't a whole lot else in terms of homegrown international players who contributed much to getting them to the playoffs. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the Astros, when we did the how they were built at the start of the postseason with all 10 playoff teams, they had significantly more homegrown war and international war uh, specifically than any other team. You know, like you said, I mean, even if you put Acuna in there, let's call Acuna, I don't know how many war he was on track to get, a six or seven war player, the Astros still would have dwarfed them and everybody else. So it's, it's I mean, we say this every year when we look at how the teams were built, that there's not, you know, one exact blueprint, you know, and you get, you know, you get some, you know, surprising contributors. You know, you mentioned Tyler Matzik, who has run the gamut from, being, you know, an exceptional draft prospect who got a ton of money to sign out of high school with the Rockies and was a total bust in Colorado and bounces around and I think even, you know, was out of baseball briefly. And, you know, now he's a postseason hero. So, um, you know, like you said, I mean, in, in a short series, Jonathan, anything can happen. You know, if you – I don't have all the numbers in front of me, you know, but if you go to baseball reference, they do like win probability added – and just at two rounds of the, of the playoffs, Tyler Matzik, you know, pitching just 10 innings of relief has added, you know, one, you know, one probable win, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, and, and so he's been huge, even though, you know, he doesn't necessarily have the pedigree of, uh, you know, a guy who, who came into pro baseball and, and dominated from day one. Now, Jonathan, you were talking about guys where you kind of have to throw the numbers out the window when it comes to the postseason. How about uh, how about Eddie Rosario, uh, a guy who um, his career OPS is 782 um, in Cleveland this year. His OPS was 685 before he went to the Braves and posted a 903 OPS, but Here's a guy who his career postseason OPS now one point one one three, and we're we're talking postseason today. We're talking Arizona Fall League, and I happen to recall uh, Eddie Rosario coming up big in the Arizona Fall League championship game back in the day. Isn't that right? 
I, I can't remember if it was 2013 or 14 because he was out here two years in a row, but he hit at least one home run in the AFL championship game. Um, Big game, Eddie. That's yeah, there you go. So, so if you, if you followed the Arizona Fall League, uh, you would have known this was coming. Um, <laughs> definitely. I, you know, it's, in fact, I found it here. He went four for five with a home run uh, in 2014 after losing the league batting championship on the last day of the regular season. So, Wow. He took it out on opposing pitchers. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean – Listen, every postseason there are guys who step up that you don't expect to. And, I mean, that trade, one of the things, you know, in writing the story that I thought was interesting in terms of the similarities, <laughs> you look at the League Championship Series MVPs, Eddie Rosario for the Braves and Jordan uh, Alvarez for the Astros, both were acquired in trades that did not, you know, set off flares as being anything particularly overwhelmingly exciting at the time that they that they were made. Now, Rosario was a big leaguer, but as you said, he was having kind of a just an okay year with Cleveland. Then he was hurt. He was on the injured list when that trade happened and came back and he performed well and, you know, and they needed outfield help. And you're like, all right, what's well, a steady veteran influence? But like, you never thought he was going to contribute like he, he did. I mean, he hit 560 in the NLCS and drove in nine runs. It's kind of insane. And I make the point, you know, that their outfield often has, uh, him, Adam Duvall, and Jock Peterson, all of whom were deadline acquisitions this year, and none of them were like you know major headline grabbing trades. And Alvarez, you know, when uh, when they made that trade, they traded Josh Fields to the Dodgers in 2016, uh, a deadline trade in the other direction when the Astros were still rebuilding. And I don't think anyone thought much of it. I mean, Jordan Alvarez was a, a re- a regarded, you know, well-regarded prospect, but, uh, you know, I don't. He hadn't even people... played a pro game yet, Jonathan, when they made that trade. What's that? He hadn't even played a professional game. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's, time. you know, it, so it was one of those things and Josh Fields is like, whatever, you know, it was kind of the small, one of those smaller the deals. Players, Jonathan, come on. Disparaging a Georgia guy in front of me. That's, that's just not fair. Well, I'm doing that on purpose. But he's um, but... good years for the Dodgers. Come on. <laughs> It was like one of those incremental, like we're going to help out our bullpen. Um, you know, the funny thing is that the you know the Astros did a lot of that this trade deadline. You know, bringing in some arms that it really, uh, really helped the, them out. That weren't huge trades, but uh, obviously helped get them where they are. But and uh, you know, listen, Alvarez had a a really good year this year. Hit thirty three homers, three point two WAR during the regular season, and then you know was almost as good as Rosario. Um, slugged 870 during the ALCS against the Red Sox. So uh, it's not, you know, the the big, huge trades often that are the ones that turn out and once you get into the postseason uh, into the, the, the players that end up contributing the most. I know the uh, Astros pitchers, Jim, is something that we've talked about, the fact that they have uh, – a staff that is uh, largely comprised of uh, some international signings on the cheap. And uh, that's, that's something we've talked about quite a bit and uh, I know something that you're pretty familiar with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you, know, you look at all this, this homegrown influence on the Astros and they've got some big money guys. I mean, you've got three top five overall picks, you could argue, or, or maybe their three best offensive players, and Carlos Correa and Kyle Tucker and Alex Bregman. You know, Lance McCullers, who's probably going to miss the World Series. I, I guess we know he's going to miss World Series. Was their best pitcher during the year. He was a big draft signee. Um, Yuli Gurriel, I guess, technically counts as a homegrown player. You know, he was signed out of Cuba. He was a $47.5 million player. But then they also have a bunch of bargains. I mean, draft-wise, you have Chaz McCormick, who's a 21st-round pick. We all know the Jose Altuve story. He signed for $15,000. But one of the things that the Astros have just done an exceptional job, and it's rescued them as they've had a number of pitching injuries and Garrett Cole left as a free agent, is that they have this knack for signing older, you know, not, signing, you know, it's weird. we talk about this all the time when we talk about international signees, about how when Jesse Sanchez does his list, it'll be like a top 30. This year was a top 50, and there'll be what, like three pitchers on it? And a lot of times the pitchers are Cuban defectors, but you don't see Dominican or Venezuelan pitchers um, for whatever reason. And, you know, the, the Astros have made it just like this 
great success of signing pitchers. You know, they're eligible to sign when they're 16, but they'll sign these guys when they're 18, 19, 20 years old for next to nothing. Like Luis Garcia, who might be the, the rookie of the year in the American League, he signed for $20,000. Framber Valdez signed for $10,000. Jose Arquiti was a little bit more. He was $100,000. I don't have Christian Javier's bonus ahead of me, in front of me, but he wasn't a big money guy either. And they get these guys who are older, and then they, they, they work some Astros pitching magic on them, and guys are throwing harder and spinning the ball better and come up with these great breaking balls. And, you know, they, they, you know it's just amazing. I mean, that, that's really been kind of, I think, the unheralded uh, X factor for the Astros is that, you know, they do have some big-name, big-money stars, but they've conjured up these international pitchers, you know, after signing them for next to nothing. Jonathan, on the brave side, um, I think one of the more interesting uh, parts of, of their story in terms of the uh, the way they built their team and um, some of their draft picks, the fact that several of their draft picks were not uh, were not top of the first round sort of guys, um, and then you have a guy like Austin Riley, who I know you are. Um, talking to some people about right now and the fact that when the Braves drafted him, a lot of teams, would you say most teams, considered him more of a pitching prospect than a hitting prospect? I would. I would say that most teams. Um, you know, and it was, I think it was the kind of thing where, uh, and, and Jim, jump in, you know, because this was your part of the country, but I think the previous summer, it, it was almost, you know, Going into the previous summer before the draft, it was almost universal that he was a pitching prospect. And then there was some, you know, talk about like, well, maybe there are some teams that like him as a hitter. Uh, you know, the the big issue there were concerns. Uh, just you know, there was a ton of raw power, but there was worried about swing and miss. And because of that, they're like, well, is he going to hit enough? You know, he's got all that arm strength. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm digging into the the story behind it. Uh, and you know, it's, it's always interesting to find out after the fact, uh, how it went down and, you know, the Braves area scout, uh, Don Thomas had turned him in as a pitcher and it was, it was really, uh, Brian Bridges in his first year as scouting director and Roy Clark, who had, had been the scouting director and had left and then came back in a, in an advisory role. Uh, they decided that, uh, they preferred him as a hitter. Uh, they sent in Greg Walker, who, uh, you know, former big leaguer, had been the the hitting coach for the Braves and then had shifted into a, uh, a, a like a scouting advisory role that a lot of teams have now where they send a like a hitting specialist or a pitching guy to go see the top hitters or pitchers. So they sent Greg Walker in to kind of cement that what they saw was right. Uh, and, you know, and they, you know, they also had an idea that Austin Riley wanted to hit and uh so they ended up taking him, you know, uh, 41st overall. It was the supplemental first round and uh, surprised a lot of people uh, because there were a lot of teams that still looked at him as a as a pitcher. And he, you know, he, he arguably, you know, I would imagine he's going to get some National League MVP votes this year. So clearly they were right. It was interesting with him. There's, there's a couple interesting subplots with Austin Riley. I mean, he, he definitely was a pitcher like the previous summer. Like, like he was one of the better pitching prospects in the country. He was 6'3", 210. He was up to 94. He had a pretty good curveball. And then his stuff was just down for most of the spring. Like he was down to 84 at one point that spring. Um, you know, he was kind of pitching 88 to 92. The, the curveball wasn't as sharp. And guys were just kind of baffled by him. And, you know, the trick thing was, you, you mentioned, Jonathan, I mean, you know, there was obviously raw power in there. There was, you know, some swing and miss. And also, we, we've talked about this on the podcast before, the track record of, of Mississippi high school players, position players sign out high school is not good. <laughs> it, is, it is not good at all. Like, it would, quick quiz, what is the most career war accrued by a Mississippi high school player who signed out of high school? You want the player name or the number? Give me the number. What do you think the record is for most career war? 12. You were high. 
It is hmm. ten and a half by Charlie Hayes. It's close second is ten point one by Billy Hamilton. Billy Hamilton was going to be my guess of who the player was, but I don't and, think and I remember that Charlie all, Hayes was from Mississippi. Yeah, and, and Billy Hamilton's almost all speed and defense because he's, sure. he's done nothing offensively. Just to put that in context, Austin Riley this year, who actually came into the year with negative WAR, I think has what six something WAR this year, which that this season alone would put him fourth on that list with Bill Hall in third place. So the track record of Mississippi high school position players is not good. And in fact, if you count guys who didn't sign, you know, who were drafted out of high school, Seth Smith would, would be number one, and he's at eleven point six. It's just it's the level of competition is not great. I mean, there've been a number of you know, interesting guys to come out of Mississippi, you know, Joe Gray with the Brewers is a recent one. Um, but just a track record, like everybody's kind of aware of that. I mean, you, you in general, you know, unless you really love the guy, are going to let the guy go to college and prove himself. You know, Hunter Renfro was a guy who, who kind of took that path. And and I remember Brian Bridges, who who we both have known for a while, Jonathan, who, who's now cross-checking with the, with the Giants, I didn't even realize I'd done this, but so I get, you know, Austin Riley was my guy to talk about on the draft show on MLB network that year. And so he gets picked, you know, we don't talk as long about the supplemental first rounders, but you know, Greg Amsinger throws it to me. And I guess I was laying out this, you know, he was a pitcher. Now he's a hitter. It's interesting, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I think I said something to the effect of, you know, you know, a lot of question on, you know, whether he'll hit enough to be a position player. And I guess I, I conclude with saying, we'll see, was how I threw it back to Greg. And I ran into Brian Bridges at the winter meetings that year. And, and I didn't really know Brian as well at that point. And, and he was good-naturedly giving me a hard time. He's like, we'll see, we'll see. We have great reports on him as a hitter. Um, and so he still likes to give me a, a hard time about how I, I, I had a I, – I guess he sensed a tone of dismissiveness in my, in my we'll see – but um, it, it's proven well, to be a really good pick. Well, we've all heard that tone of dismissiveness from you, Jim. So I can I think Brian was spot on there. There you go. Yeah. I may work that into the story. There you go. <laughs> you find the clip. There's probably video of me on our site talking about Austin Riley when he got drafted. And you can you can you can grade my dismissiveness on the 20 Davies scale. A D raw dismissiveness. But how usable was that? Uh, you tend to get to it pretty pretty readily. We, uh, we had Austin Riley ranked 106th in that draft class on our top 200 draft prospects list. That draft, by the way, the uh, 2015 draft, quite well represented in this World Series, including three of the top five picks overall in number one, Dansby Swanson, uh, taken by the D-backs. Of course, that infamous trade to the Braves. Uh, and then the Astros with two of the top five picks overall in that draft and seem to have done pretty well with those, with Alex Bregman and Kyle Tucker. The number three and four picks, by the way, Brendan Rodgers and Dylan Tate went three and four to the Rockies and the Rangers. Um, but guys, talk a little bit about how the top of that draft unfolded. And I know that uh, I, I don't know if the story is up yet. I know there's a story coming from Brian McTaggart on Alex Bregman being taken second behind Dansby Swanson and how that uh, irked him a bit and and, uh, you know, fired him up. And I know we have heard about that directly from Alex. Um, but again, talk a little bit about how the top of that uh, draft did unfold. Well, they, you know, it, it's funny because you're, you're alluding to it. We, I remember talking to Bregman at the Futures game, the, the Futures game office the year after that, I guess mm -hmm. it was 2016. And we had just made him the number one prospect on our midseason list. And I think Baseball America had him at number two. And Alex came in. And he's like, ah, I'm not ta I'll talk to you guys because you guys have me number one. And it's funny because anybody who talks to Alex Bregman, I talked to him a little bit in, in college at the College World Series. I mean, it's not like he's had a lot of adversity as a player. But he definitely, I think, kind of manufactures the chip on his shoulder a little bit. And, That's uh, it. And I, and I remember, I think, I think you guys know, my, my, my oldest son, AJ's favorite team is the Astros. And when Bregman came up, I think he started off his career one for 35. He just missed a grand slam in his first game, and he was making some loud outs, but he was like one for 35. And I remember telling AJ, I was like, <laughs> you know, some guys you might worry a little bit, like this would get in their head. I said, this is just going to make Alex Bregman better. Because I'm 100% convinced he's like really ticked off 
because he knows he's not a one for 35 guy. Um, and then he was, you know, basically since then, Bregman was great down the stretch and has been great since then. But yeah, he, you know, he and Swanson, I think, played together on Team USA the summer before. Um, and I, I didn't call it up here, but I know I did, I think, a Team USA top prospects list. It would be interesting to, to, to find that. But, um, you know, so he and, Swan, he and Swanson were, were, were friends. They knew each other from the, the SEC. Um, but yeah, he, he I, I think he's probably still ticked off that he went number two in, instead of number one. Yeah, I, I think you nailed it, Jim, that sort of manufactured chip. You know, and sometimes you have any guy who, you know, he's not the biggest guy in the world. So probably when he was, you know, even in high school, uh, you know, it was maybe a little under uh, underappreciated. And he was from New Mexico. So, you know, people always look at hitters from New Mexico and think, well, you know, it's, it's easier to hit there. The air is thin, you know, what have you. And I think he would take any kind of perceived slight and use that as motivation. So whether it was where he was taken in the draft or where he was ranked on a list, you know, I, I mean, you know, <laughs> he could finish second in a, in a, you know, in a race to, to get to lunch and probably would use that as, as, as fuel. Like, you know, um, I think that uh, it's just what makes him go. And so the fact that uh, you know, that that is the the, the case, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I found your story, by the way, Jim, about Team USA. And so this I would have been 2014, correct? What's that? Yeah, it would have been 2014. You had Dansby Swanson three and Alex Bregman four. And Swanson played second and Bregman played short, by the way. Yeah. Um, do you remember who the top two players were? Well, I do because I called up the story. Like, uh, I, I'm not surprised that I had Carson Fulmer ahead of them because I, I loved Carson Fulmer as, yeah. as a college prospect. He was number two. I was surprised, although he had a great summer. Uh, I had Kyle Funkhauser number one. So, um, interesting. I'm, I'm looking down this list to see if I've any, anybody buried. Yeah, no. I mean, there's not a lot of notable guys behind beyond the but beyond three and four. But yeah, I mean, it's. It's interesting. I, mean, I think this, the thing with Bregman, you know, if you were nitpicking him at the time, I don't think people thought he'd have as much power as he had. And I don't know if you guys remember this when we were talking to him in the, um, you know, at the futures game, because we, he talked to us prior for what it had to be at least 30 minutes. It might've been closer to an hour. We had a long conversation with him mm -hmm. and he was hitting for a lot of power that year, I mean, he he went straight to Double A and was tearing it up. Then he went to Triple A, and you know the story was when they going to call him up, which I think was very shortly after the Futures game. Um, and he was talking about how he loved the fact when he got in the pro ball. You know, the Astros have some things that they not it's not cookie cutter, but they 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 have some things that they try to get their their hitters to do or their better hitters to do. And Alex always had great bat on ball skills, and you know I think. If you want to make Alex Bregman a batting champion with 15 to 20 home run power, you could do that. But the Astros said, look, you know, now that you're in pro ball, we want you turning on more pitches, focusing on driving the ball. And he was thrilled and, and he loved it. And he, and he loved that approach. And I was going to say another thing I remember too about Alex's mentality is, is they had a, in 2015, they lost at the college world series. Um, and they got, they, they, they were like one pitcher short. He was on a team with Nola but they didn't have pitching depth behind him. So they got eliminated and he said they were in Omaha and he called the Astros and apparently said, I want to play in Cedar Rapids tomorrow. Like their, their quad cities team was, was probably a, I don't know, four hour drive from Omaha. And he was so ticked after losing that he called the Astros and he was, and he hadn't signed yet and they didn't have the number worked out officially, but he wanted to sign and, and go play. And they're like, dude, just, we got to finish your contract and take a week off, but you know we'll get you to Quad Cities soon enough. I'm sure he found a cage somewhere to hit. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's just how he's wired. It, it's 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 an amazing thing to say that like that the Astros did well by whiffing on the number one pick the previous year, um, but that's kind of what led the the set the stage for them to be able to get Bregman and Tucker, you know, in, in at the top of that draft. Yeah, I mean, you know, we've talked about this too. I mean. You know, you need to be lucky and good in the draft. And, you know, the Astros did a lot of great things. And they built a team that's, that's been to, what, three of the last five World Series and, and five league championship series team, five league championship series in a row. And, you know, we, we alluded before, like, they've had this great success 
with, with top five picks. They got Carlos Correa with the number one pick. They got Alex Bregman with the number two pick. But there, there, there's an alternate universe uh, where the Astros could have blown three number one picks in a row. Um, you know, I, I still think that Appel was the guy, that Mark Appel was the guy they wanted in 2012, which was first year of the bonus system, uh, the, the bonus pool era. And they couldn't engage Scott Boris on what it would take. You know, teams were trying to, to lock in what it was going to cost to sign guys so they could then, you know, spread out their money and figure out what they're doing later picks. But, the, but there's an alternate scenario where they take Mark Appel in 2012 and then with Mark Appel not there for them to take number one overall in 2013, the number two guy on their board that year was Colin Moran. It wasn't Chris Bryant. And then what if Brady Aiken, the whole Brady Aiken saga, you know, unraveled when they didn't like the way his elbow looked in a post-draft physical and it got very contentious. And then, of course, Brady Aiken blew out his elbow like the next time he pitched the following January. But they still made him a very sizable offer, I believe more than $5 million at the deadline, you know, a reduced offer. What if Brady Aiken takes that offer? Then, 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 you know, they could have had a scenario where three years in a row they had the number one overall pick in the draft and they came away with Mark Appel, Colin Moran, and Brady Aiken. And we probably aren't talking about the Astros being the team they are. I want to spend like just a minute talking about Kyle Tucker because he was like the normal draft pick that year and we haven't really talked a whole lot about him. Uh, you know, and sometimes the high school guys it can take a, you know, a little bit longer for them to, to figure things out. Uh, but, you know, that out of Tampa, Florida, you know, one of the top high school hitters in that in that draft class. And, uh, you know, he was in the big leagues at age 21 and kind of just was okay you know like last you know last year was a shortened year but uh you know 2019 18 and 19 he played a little bit 2020 you know he was playing pretty much every day had an 837 ops you know wasn't anything uh overwhelmingly exciting i think he he was 1.9 war and then this year is when he he's kind of figured it all out and you know 30 homer a year 14 steals 917 ops 5.7 war I mean, this is the player that they hope they're getting, and he's still super young. He was 24 for the entirety of this year, and you know they have him under control through what 2025. So you know, I, I think he's just now. I mean, I think what he did this year is what we're going to see year in year out, and he, he's going to you know become a very an increasingly important part of, of 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 that lineup and i just you know we spent so much time talking about bregman and then the and the and the misses on the number one pick you know that was the pick that they were going to have uh regardless and uh and and they nailed that one uh you know and and you know and they didn't panic uh not that teams do that now but you know sometimes you get a, a top of the first round pick and you get them in the big leagues and they're not that good and you start to, to worry or you don't give them the opportunities. Uh, and he kind of slowly at the big league level started to figure things out. And, and we've seen the, the results of that patience and the work that Tucker's put in uh, this year and what was a, a really, really good offensive season for him. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, when he was ready for the big leagues, you know, as you know, I mean, he, he went 2020, 2020, 30, 30. I mean, he pretty much produced everywhere he went. You know, this was a guy the Astros were on very, very early in the draft process. I mean, I don't think anybody was surprised that the Astros took him at, no, at number five. And, you know, the thing was, because the Astros had started to win, you know, shortly after that, when he was ready for the big leagues at age 21, the Astros were trying to win. You know, they, you know, they, they were defending World Series champions. And so even though he had two really good years in AAA, he didn't do much his first year in the big leagues at 21. And, and it was just a situation, you know, this wasn't like, you know, the Astros of 2013, 14, where it's like, okay, we'll get him at bats and he'll play and we're not very good and it doesn't matter. He didn't produce. So like they couldn't play him. And then in 2019, you know, they, they kind of had a pretty set lineup and, you know, he played better, but he only got a handful of at bats. And, you know, even last, you know, I, I think last year, Jonathan, had he, had we had a normal season, which we clearly didn't, we would, you know, he would have gotten a little bit more attention nationally because i mean he had a really nice season last yep. year and he played almost every day for the astros um but you know it was a 58 game season so it you know it was kind of odd and, and like you said i mean i i would expect him you know to go you know probably get you know i i think i don't even think we've seen the best of him yet so he mm -hmm. so he is you know they, they you know after some fits and starts with you know some of the you know 
some of the guys they took, you know, with Lapel and and uh, and Aiken. And and, and and I'll say this: I, the Aiken wasn't a bad pick. Nobody could have foreseen that was going on with his elbow. He had a great spring. I, I think. Do we have him ranked as the number one prospect, Jonathan? I don't remember what our list looked like, but like I think a lot of teams might have taken Aiken number one. Um, but it, it certainly worked out that they they turned that pick into Alex Bregman and then had the number five overall pick and used that on Tucker. Jim, you said that it, uh, you you don't think it surprised anyone that the Astros took Tucker at number five, and <clears throat> not that it surprised you guys because actually, uh, you Jim, I'm looking back at the sort of final mock. Yeah, draft. no, I talked myself into Andrew Benintendi who was rising like, and, <laughs> and kicked myself. It's, and like, like we do that all the time in mocks where you, you, you change something and then you're like, why did I change that? Just like I was, <laughs> I was did a podcast for the White Sox yesterday and we we're talking about Colson Montgomery and I had Colson Montgomery go in the White Sox about eight mock drafts in a row and then had the Cubs taking him one pick ahead of them. Uh, and I should have just left it. So we did have Aiken number one in 2014, by the way. Yeah. So anyway, I knew I did not have Tucker, which is why I worded it like that when I, <laughs> I and, and uh, but I apparently couldn't sneak that by Jason. But like, yeah, I, I kind of kicked myself for outsmarting myself into thinking that it might take Ben and Ted. Uh, Jim, I, I was actually before you cut me off, I I'm was sorry. actually trying to give you credit because in your previous mock draft, your final solo mock draft three days earlier, you did have Tucker to the Astros. Doesn't count, though. That wasn't your final mock. You guys, each of you did uh, nail the top three. Oh, no, wait a second. No, that's not right. Uh, Jonathan, uh, <clears throat> you ended up having Rodgers at number five to the Astros. You had Tyler J going to the Rockies at number three, but Jim got the top three correct. That was much consternation that year for us because we the, the, the Rockies, it was about 51-49, uh, Rogers versus Jay. And and I don't remember what you were up to, Jonathan, but you know, we had that we we're waiting for the draft broadcast to start and we were at the offices and we both love working with Dan O'Dowd, who obviously worked with the Rockies for many years. Bill Schmidt, one of my favorite scouting directors, now the GM of the Rockies. But Bill is not the most open with what he's going to do at the top of the draft. You know, yeah, Bill's not going to tell either of us who his first round pick is. So we were both like you don't want to get the number three pick wrong because then it just snowballs. And I remember asking O'Dowd, I asked Dan so many times that afternoon, Jonathan, <laughs> that he finally said, I know Bill Schmidt's not going to tell you. But he's like, he gave me the number of somebody else with the organization. He's like, call this guy. Basically, stop asking me. But I was like, I know, because like Dan and Bill, I think Bill was one of Dan's first hires. As scouting director when Dan became Rocky's GM way back when. So I knew they were close friends. So I knew that if Bill, if they made a decision and Bill was going to tell anybody, it would be Dan. So I think I, I bothered poor Dan more than he wanted. But um, I do remember like feeling like that was the key bit of information we knew. And it was, it was pretty much 50, 50. All right, guys, we need to take a break, but real quick, I want to have you make your world series predictions. Uh, there is a site, a uh, story up on MLB.com right now, uh, where I think nearly a hundred or maybe even over a hundred, uh, people from MLB.com have made their predictions. Did you guys partake in that? Or are you part of this? I did. We were, we were cajoled into picking in that. Yes. All right. So your, uh, responses are part of this, but let's, uh, and you've got, I guess you have to stick with what you, uh, what you input for this, right? So what, what did you, what did you guys go here? Uh, we need a winner, a uh, number of games, and MVP. Well, there's no way, by the way, this is the honor system. You have no way of knowing what we what we do. I think I can track it down. Oh, man. See, we were promised anonymity, so if that's the case, I'm going to be <laughs> – Not by me, you weren't. You're, you're, you'd be very angry if that's you That's fine. I, uh, I picked the Braves. I honestly don't remember how many games I said, but I think I said seven. I think I typically guess seven because I just want – Game seven of the World Series, and my MVP is Ozzy Albies. I went Braves in six. We were in the minority because wow, I was going to say fifty-two of the seventy-six respondents picked the Astros, um, and my World Series MVP was uh, Freddie Freeman, who it looks like there. two people picked Ozzy Albies, so Jonathan was one of them, and fourteen people picked Freddie Freeman who was the second highest vote getter behind Carlos Correa. 
I like but how I, 70, I have no scientific basis for any I, of that. I like how, according to Jason, 76 respondents is nearly 100. Well, if you're rounding, I, I round, guess. Yeah, like, round yeah. up to, yeah, round, rounding up to the nearest 100. Uh, sure. <laughs> so That's pretty close to 100. Come on. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot closer to 100 than zero, Jonathan. That I will give you that. All right. did, we pick, did you pick an unsung hero? I don't remember if I voted for an unsung hero. I did. I picked Tyler Matzik. You know, I think I picked Tyler Matzik too. That would make you two out of ten. Now, yeah, I, I left out the unsung heroes. Two, uh, ten different people picked Tyler Matzik. I guys. just think he's going to keep doing what he's doing right now. He is I feel fire. like he's kind of sung at this point. Carlos Correa is the unsung hero for the Astros. Like, the Astros are going to win. And nobody, nobody's going to say anything about Carlos Correa. Who's this I Carlos want you to Correa track guy? that voter down, Jason. I will. Figure out who that was. I will. All right. Let's take a break. And when we come back, Jim is going to talk to Jeter Downs live on that live from Arizona. <laughs> I've got him right here in my hotel room with me. We're going to, we're, we're going to reprise our interview from yesterday. That's coming up right after this on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Jim Callis here out in the Arizona Fall League. I'm talking to uh, Red Sox middle infielder Jeter Downs, who has just homered in his fifth consecutive game in the Arizona Fall League. Jeter, have you ever had a streak like that in your life where you've hit a home run that many consecutive games? Honestly, no, not that I can remember. I remember in 2019, I think I hit three in one game, but that was about it. But yeah, five is pretty crazy. Um, um, I think I'm, I'm blessed that I can come out here and play baseball each and every day. So thank God for the opportunity. And I'm just going to keep coming and working hard and just keep trying to do me. And I mean, do you see yourself as a power hitter? I mean, is that, I mean, when you break yourself down, I mean, you're kind of a guy who does a little bit of everything, right? I mean, you're not, I mean, do you see yourself as a slugger? How would you describe yourself as a player? I mean, I think I said this the other day, I don't see myself as a power hitter because if you watch my BP, I would never put on like an absolute show on BP. I would just hit line drives all over the field. So that's all I try to do. I just try to swing at good pitches, hit line drives, and, and let, let, let like the pitcher's velocity and stuff take take care of itself, provide the power for me. I'm not a big guy. I'm 5'11", 190, 185. So it's pitcher has to do the power for me. So I just try to swing at good pitches, stay in my zone, and, and put a good swing on balls. And we saw that today. I mean, your home run in the eighth inning, I mean, it was, I think, pitch on the outer half. You didn't try to pull it. I mean, you went the other way with it and, and drilled it into the, the right field like picnic area. You know, caught it pretty good. Was that your, have you been using the whole field pretty well when you've been down here? Do you think? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the key for me. I feel like when I use the whole field, um, I, I, I'm 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 at my best when I try to when things start getting out of whack a little bit and I start using just one part of the field and I get ex I, I I tend to forget that there's another side to to work with and I'll get like pool, not pool happy in a sense but I'll just like start flying open a little bit so right now I'm in a good place I'm staying I'm staying true to myself I'm like hitting the ball where it's pitched and that's all I can really do. How nice is it to, to finish the season on a strong net? I mean you had kind of an unusual season for you after a lot of success early in your pro career your first two months weren't great but they weren't bad you know pretty steady first two months and then you struggled in July and August and it seemed like you got going again in September and you've been hot out here was there anything in particular that you you changed in September or adjusted or I mean it was it was an unusual season. What what did you, how did you see it from your perspective? Uh, mechanically, I had I had a couple of things going. So, like in a sense, like July and August, I was trying to like fix those things, and obviously, it wasn't the greatest. But it was it was a rough couple months trying to like play and also like fix those mechanical issues that I had going on. Yeah, I've never really dealt before, dealt with before in my in my career, so 
it was definitely something like to get used to and like but in a sense i i, I look at it as a blessing because like now i know something about myself that i didn't know before and in a sense i was fine i can handle like failure like it showed a different part of me that i didn't know i had you know what i mean so yeah i mean um, you've, you've struggled but you've now shown yourself yeah, that you yeah. can kind of come out of it yeah, too yeah so it's it definitely a blessing like i took what i got from it i learned from it and i'm just trying to keep building each and every day what was it specifically mechanically that you were struggling with oh uh, it was just like a lot of like body and like body control and like just i was like too like in a sense like wacky i would call it like i was just getting too big with stuff and like especially with my moves that i have they're a little unorthodox so as long as i stay controlled and like within my frame i i, I should i would should give myself a chance to fight so it was just learning how to like in a sense like be balanced again and just learning from that and like learning how to deal with the failure and play at the same time you know what I mean so you, you know as I noted I mean you played better in September you started to come out of it some were you excited to get a chance to come out here and play some more just because you know things were going well and to continue to build on what you did at the end of the season oh yeah 100% it was definitely one of my one of the, like it was kind of like a fresh start in a sense um, coming out here so I just want I just want to come out here have fun play the game and enjoy it because I feel like I, I was just pressing a little bit too much so play like how I know how to play and like go from there What's it like? I mean, when you're a player, you're in AAA. You're obviously close to the big leagues by the very nature of being in AAA. I mean, and you even more so in particular. I mean, you're here in Worcester, which is not that far from Boston. The Red Sox don't necessarily have a long-term second baseman in place. You know, if you wind up going to second, you've also played some short. They have Bogarts there, obviously. Do you, as a player, do you look at that? Is that in the back of your mind? Are you are you watching what's going on in Boston? Are you aware that like, hey, there might be an opportunity for me pretty soon, or or do you try to just focus on? playing your game and figure that'll take care of itself yeah that, that's one thing I, I i think i learned pretty pretty well this year that a lot of a lot of my teammates that got called up like they got called up at times where nobody in the team were, was expecting it or not even them were, were expecting it so I, I took from that like just go out play each and every day and like like you can't control what the higher ups decide so just try focus on what you can control and 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 worry worry about that you can't control the future or the past or just stay in the present and keep going. Yeah, I mean, obviously Boston's known for having pretty diehard fans, you know, pretty intense fans. Did you get a taste of that in Worcester? I mean, first first year they had a AAA team, new ballpark, but you're not that far away from Boston. I'm sure the fans knew who you were, you know, what your background was. Did you get a taste of that in Worcester this year? Oh, yeah, Worcester was great. Uh, from opening day till the end of the year, it was always packed, pretty much always sold out fans were into the game um it was pretty it was pretty cool to like like witness that I think Connor threw out Connor Wong threw out a runner and a fan said nice throw to Connor it was like nice pick to me I was like I, I don't think I've ever heard a fan <laughs> get that into that detailed about like baseball so that was that was that was definitely eye-opening and it was pretty cool like playing in front of them each and every day speaking of eye-opening how you know, surprising, unusual was it to you? I mean, involved in two major trades pretty early in your career. Did you have any inkling either one of those was coming? You know, the, the Reds traded you to the Dodgers in a multiplayer deal, and then, you know, you have a great year for the Dodgers, and then all of a sudden you're getting traded for arguably the best player in baseball in Mookie Betts. I mean, I think both of them caught me by surprise. Like the first, the second one, I, I was I was a little, like, I wasn't expecting it, but once the first trade went through, I kind of like chilled out a bit and I didn't, I didn't think I was going to get traded. But then the second one caught me by surprise. I don't know if I, if you heard this, but I was on the way to the airport about to come out here for spring training. Oh, really? Arizona. Yeah, my, I had already shit my car and everything out here. So I was on the way over into the airport and then I got the call and obviously stayed home <laughs> had to get your car How, how'd you get your car to had florida to ship it back to fort myers oh it was a disaster yeah. right, where, where are you from in florida are you Miami. okay so not yeah. so close to fort myers yeah. but at least closer for family yeah. to it's like two hours be, yeah be able to see you be able to, to see you play yeah you've played i think you've split your time out here between second base and shortstop is that the plan defensively for you out here to, to play both Oh uh, yeah, I think that's the plan. But we also have uh, Marco, that he only plays short, so um, that he's getting over there. He's gonna be such a good player. I love, I love the kid to death. 
Um, but yeah, I, I, I play where they put me and I don't ask questions. I just go, go out, try to enjoy the game and play hard. In terms of fall league, you know, we're about a couple weeks into the season now. You, you mentioned Marco Luciano, your teammate. I was curious, like, like who's impressed you the most out here? There's a lot of top prospects out here. Who, who stuck out to you, whether it's a hitter or a pitcher? I mean, I know you've seen Tristan Costas before, so that's not necessarily new. I've seen Tristan since I was like 10. Oh, really? Did you guys play together? Yeah, we, grew up, we grew up playing together. Um, yeah, uh, Richie Palacios also. He just finds a way to put the bear on the ball after like each and every game. Uh, Curtis Mead, he's, really, he's going to be a really good hitter. Uh, Mane as well, I feel like he has a really good swing. Like fluid, like whippy, plays good, de plays good defense too. I mean, everybody pretty much. It's, that's what the fall league's about, I feel like. Just playing a bunch, around a bunch of good players. Who's the best pitcher you've faced out here? Best pitcher. From the top of my head, the only one I could remember right now, I don't know his name. He's from the Dodgers. I, I, I think it was Knack. Oh, Landon Knack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had pretty good stuff, so. And really good control, yeah, from what was, I hear. I had, a, I had a pretty tough at batting. It was, it was fun. I love, I, I love like, those type of battles against guys. How's the pitching compare here to what you saw in AAA? Is it pretty comparable? or? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, everybody here is pretty, pretty top of the line, so um, I would say so. Is there anything in particular you're working on out here or anything in particular you feel like, like you need to do to be ready for th that jump to the big leagues? I mean, just honing in on my moves that I do and also just like swinging at my pitches, like honing in on my strike zone and what I want to hit and not necessarily trying to hit everything and cover the entire zone. I want to do damage on my pitches and and if I don't get them, like live to fight another day and like battle with two strikes or whatever the case that is. Well, and I want to say, I think to this point, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I think you've walked eight times in seven starts. I mean, you've drawn a decent number of walks, so it seems like mission accomplished. I mean, you're not chasing, and when you get a pitch to hit, you're not missing it. It doesn't seem so far in the in the early going. Yes, sir. If I can stay there, control my moves, just swing at my pitches, I should be fine. Okay. Well, keep up the good work, Cheater. It's good, good fun watching you today yes, and good sir. talking to you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Thanks very much to uh, Jeter Downs for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Jim, you only you will only interview guys who have homered in at least, what is it, three or four straight games. Uh, Downs qualifies having homered in five straight games. Is that your that's your prerequisite? Yeah, so I don't, we'll, we'll see if we can get somebody else to do that for next week's podcast. But yeah, it was, it was interesting, you know, it was impressive because, you know, Downs, we talk about in the interview, I mean, he had a rough year. He was, you know, he never really had a big month or got hot in AAA. He was okay the first two months, then then really bad the next two months, and then okay in September. Um, but he's looked good out here. You know, he, I think he, you know, he kind of attributes to it, trying to do too much during the regular season. And he did the exact opposite of that yesterday. His his fifth homer, it was an opposite field shot. It was an outside pitch, and he just hit like a, a screaming line drive into the right field stands. You know, rather than trying to you know pull it to left field, and you know it was it was a no doubter. He got out of the park in about you know, it seemed like about one point five seconds. So we'll we'll see. I don't have the I don't think they're playing today, but uh, we'll see if he can go six straight and. Before you ask, I have no idea what the record is for consecutive games with a home run in Arizona. Shoddy fall. reporting. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I was I, thinking. I'm going to blame it on shoddy or... record keeping. I don't think there's much in the way of Arizona Fall League records like that. Five in a row has to be a fall league. I, record, I would think right? so. You don't know. I mean, how do you know? I mean, I don't know. Brandon Wood hit 14 that year, and he had four in one game. I wonder. We, we, I think the best we could go would be believed to be. It needs the believe to be qualifier. But, but anyway, he's back to – I mean, coming into the year, he looked like the Red Sox second baseman of the very near future. And 
and that may be true again. Now, as hot as he has been, he was not uh, the Arizona Fall League hitter of the week last week. Those honors go to Austin Wells, who uh, went seven for 13 and 15 plate appearances, racked up 15 total bases, three doubles, a triple, a home run, five RBIs. Um, and Jim, another exciting Yankees prospect, one who uh, was uh, overshadowed a bit this year, certainly, um, by a, a huge breakout season uh, from the now Yankees number one prospect, Anthony Volpe. And of course, there's, you know, Jason Dominguez, everybody talks about, but uh, Austin Wells, another exciting guy, number six on the Yankees top 30 prospects list. Yeah, and he, I mean, I, I think he gets overshadowed a lot, to be honest. I mean, if you go back to the, the 2020 draft where he was a late first round pick by the Yankees, and he went about in the draft where he was supposed to go. He wasn't underdrafted. But, you know, a lot of the attention on, on that draft was focused on Spencer Torkelson, you know, rightfully so, because he's, you know, one of the best hitters to come out of the draft in, in a couple decades. And unfortunately, I, I didn't get to see Torkelson down here because he hurt himself on the slide and the, the Tigers sent him home. So he's, he's out of the fall league, but all the talk was on Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin. And I, and I really think you can make a case, Jonathan, that Wells might've been, if you're talking hit for average, hit for power, control the strike zone, he might've been the second best all around hitting talent on the college side of that draft. Um, but you know, he wasn't a top of the first round type of guy. So he didn't really get the spotlight on him much. And like you said, Jason, he had a really nice year in his pro debut, but again, I mean, he wasn't Anthony Volpe. He wasn't Jason Dominguez making his pro debut. So like he gets overshadowed a little bit in the, in the Yankee system, but this guy, he just hits everywhere he goes. I mean, even going back to high school in, in Las Vegas, I mean, he was one of the you know better high school hitters in the draft. You know, I think the big question with him is going to be what position do you play him at? I mean, the Yankees, I think more than most teams, uh, have a more of a priority on offense and defense a catcher or, or less of a priority on defense than other teams. I mean, Gary Sanchez could certainly stand as an example of that, but you know, I, I think there's mixed reviews about Austin Wells and, and you guys know my thought on that. Like if you have a guy who can really hit and he's shaky behind the plate, I, I would just move him to another position. I would put him in left field. You know, he runs well enough to play left field and just get the most out of his bat. But, but I think that's going to be, I don't think there's any question this guy will hit. It's just, does he stay a catcher? And if he does, how much of a toll does that take on his bat? Yeah, he's he's an interesting offensive player to me. And, you know, it's it's one of those things because, you know, he was a, a sophomore out of Arizona and his sophomore year was short. You know, I think that sort of worked, I don't say against him, because I agree he went where he was supposed to, but maybe that left him a little underappreciated among the college bat ranks, even though he, you know, he'd hit really well in the Cape uh yeah you know, both for average and power and, you know, had a, a solid year this year. Uh, and, you know, Jimmy, you talked about him being able to run around enough to play left field. He stole 16 bases during the regular season. And, you know, he, he's going to be a good offensive player. And, uh, you know, it'll just be a question of, you know, saving his legs and or if that slows his progress down. Uh, but he's going to hit his way up to New York, I think, relatively quickly. All right. And then on the pitching side, uh, sometimes in the fall league, a pitcher of the week is a little tricky uh, because the guys just don't pitch that much. It's uh, pretty rare that you get to see a guy twice in a week. And then uh, guys who, uh, even when you know they're making one start a week, you usually only see them for three, four, maybe five innings. In this case, the Arizona fall league pitcher of the week is James Marinen of the Reds, who went three perfect innings and struck out six. And we're talking about uh, Austin Wells being overshadowed and, and you know, sort of relatively unknown uh, among Yankees' top prospects. Uh, James Marinan, even more so in terms of being unknown. Uh, I would venture to say that many to most people listening to the MLB Pipeline podcast probably not familiar with James Marinan, who is uh, not on the Reds' top 30 prospect list, has been on the Reds' top 30 prospect list uh, last year, opened the season at number 27, in 2019 was number 20, and then going back, 
uh, was actually on the Dodgers top 30 prospects list back in 2018 was number 22. So a team of yours, Jim. And so I guess uh, Jonathan and Jim, both of you guys, at least somewhat familiar with this week's uh, Arizona Fall League Pitcher of the Week. I want to start with uh, questioning you belittling our listeners' knowledge of baseball. I don't don't care for that. Well, I'll get to the bottom of this, too. I'll take a poll. I'll find out how many of our listeners. Yeah, please do. Let's find out. Uh, You know, we may find out that a lot of people know about James Marinan. You know, he he was my sleeper Reds prospect when we did that. Wow, look at you. One for each team. Um, But. You know, this is a guy who's always teased with very good stuff. He's six foot five. Uh, you know, he, he he's got, uh, you know, like I said, some really good stuff. He just hasn't been able to stay healthy. You know, back even in 2019, he had an elbow stress fracture. Uh, this this past year, he only threw 64 and two thirds innings. Um, you know, he did finish off well in high A and has carried it over. Uh, he's made two outings now in, in the fall league, and he's given up one hit in seven innings and struck out eight and walked one. Uh, and this is an important year for him uh, because this is his 40-man roster year. And if he continues to throw like this, I think the Reds are going to have to add him or someone's probably going to take him and, and you know, even if they put him in, in the bullpen because command has been an issue, uh, but he's not pitched above a ball. Uh, you know, so, you know, this is his – his first go round. So, you know, there's a couple things going on with him in terms of him working on his refining his stuff, adding innings to his resume because he's not, you know, he's never pitched uh, more than 70. You know, he hasn't topped 80 innings in a year uh, yet since he's been drafted. But even when the Reds got him from the Dodgers, I remember, you know, adding him to the Reds uh, prospect list. And, you know, he was interesting because there was some really good pieces some good raw stuff the size is there and he was young uh you know he's still uh you know he just turned 23 uh, earlier this month uh so there's time for him to figure it out he's like you know a, a high school guy out of the orlando area who was taken back in 2017 so there are some pieces here that are interesting and you know i think both the reds and and 29 other teams I think we talk about this a lot in the fall league. You know, it's yes, it's a finishing school. It's also kind of an audition spot, either for the forty-man roster or for potentially getting selected in the Rule Five draft. Now, look at the jump uh, from he, he pitched in thirteen games at Low A, five point three zero ERA. Um, a 1.52 whip walked 35 batters in 52 and two thirds innings. Um, only struck out 46 in 52 and two thirds innings. Gets bumped up to high A, makes two starts, both shutout, six inning shutout efforts, allowed just four hits, uh, still with six walks, but 17 strikeouts. And then, like you said, just carried that uh, right over into the Arizona Fall League. So, uh, what happened? What happened? <laughs> That is, that's quite a stark contrast when you're bumping up the level of uh, competition and improving like that. Well, we might track, have a story on him today, right? Track, like track, him, track him down out there, Jim. No, I actually, yeah, yeah, I think William Bohr is. Well, uh, Bohr already should have tracked him down yesterday, right? Yep. Yeah, well, he's, I think he's talking to him today. Thank you. Well, we'll get answers to that question. All right. Let's wrap up with a question. In the mailbag, this one comes from Silvio at Silvio MGN. Silvio says, Joey Weimer had, uh, looked great all season and seems to continue this trend in the Arizona Fall League. What is your assessment of him as a prospect in the Brewers Farm System, which has several good outfield prospects? And this is a guy who, uh, from the looks of things uh, on, uh, on Twitter, Brewers fans are extremely excited about. Well, they should be. I mean, it's, you know, their farm system is not the strongest right now. You know, he's coming off a a tremendous, you know, regular season where he, you know, was 295 and ops of all, you know, 960, 27 homers, 30 steals. You know, he was a guy who, he was one of my draft guys. He was a fourth round pick last year, played at Cincinnati, really good athlete, you know, had a, you know, a lot of raw power, solid runner, 
low above average arm. He was, I think, even hit upper 90s with his fastball during some brief uh, relief appearances. Big physical, six foot five, 215 pound guy. And the question with him, you know, like a lot of these guys, was is he going to hit? You know, I mentioned six foot five, so the swing can get long. It wasn't the smoothest swing. There's a lot going on in it. So even though he had a lot of tools, there's a reason he lasted till the fourth round. He was like a career, I'm looking here, 264 hitter at Cincinnati, which is not tearing up college baseball by any means. But, you know, he's played great out here, you know, 11 for 26. He's got a homer. He's got a couple steals. You know, he's not, you know, comparing him to other Brewers outfield prospects, he's not Garrett Mitchell. But I would suspect, you know, right now he's number 23 on our our top 100. I mean, our top one, our top 30 Brewers list. And my guess would be that he will probably rank, you know, in the top 10 or very close to it when we update the list going into next year. Yeah, I think I think that's right. He's obviously under under ranked. Uh, you know, what was he? He was about uh, 167th on our draft list in, in 2020. Uh, you know, I mean, went I love you know went 121st overall. Uh, and you know, but the, this is something that happens. You know, college guys with tools. You know, uh, and, and he's been able to get to those tools, and you know, hopefully it, it continues. Uh, it'll be fun to see how he uses the fall league as a springboard to the upper levels, and you know, and, and how much the fall league performance will dictate how high he, he goes up on the list. But I, I I think he probably fits in somewhere in their top ten uh, when we re-rank all of our lists at the beginning of next year. All right, thanks to Silvio for that question. Thanks to Jeter Downs for joining us on the program today. That's going to be a wrap for the MLB Pipeline podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.